Welcome to the Maternity and Midwifery Hour, brought to you once a week by the Maternity and Midwifery Forum. This podcast is supported by Matflix, video streaming from maternity experts. All your CPD needs made easy. If you need to get your revalidation done or have a student project to complete, Matflix is the one-stop shop. Welcome to this week's Maternity and Midwifery Hour. This is the second episode of the second series of the Maternity and Midwifery Hour. And we're going to be talking about breaking through despite the odds. And I'm so thrilled. We have the wonderful Dame Elizabeth Anionwu. And I hope I've pronounced that correctly, Elizabeth. That's, that's not bad. Excellent. So, CBE and Dame, of course, as well. Um, and my name's Sue MacDonald. I'm the curator of the Maternity and Midwifery Festival and these hours. And these were really designed to provide some continuing professional development for midwives, for student midwives, other people within the maternity services. Um, and they're accessible now and in the future. So if you can't, if you didn't make it tonight on Wednesday and you're viewing this on Friday, that's quite normal and fine, actually, and share it with your friends. And, and also, I want to say a huge thank you to Matflix, who do the, the video streaming, and it's from mid, mid Maternity Experts. And this is a fantastic resource for midwives and for student midwives to keep you up to date and get ready for your revalidation, for those of you who are approaching that. And I'd like to say a big welcome back. It's been a busy summer. And with all of the problems, we've had the, all these youngsters going through all their O-levels and A-level stresses. And now we've got issues with the, the young people starting universities and all the rise in um, COVID. And I, I will, all I'll say is, on the positive note, welcome to all the student midwives who start at university this week or last week, and welcome also to the student midwives who are still on their programmes. It's fabulous that you're, you're with us this evening. I think you're going to really enjoy this evening a huge amount. Um, and we've got, we usually have for these hours, we usually have two speakers, then we have an opportunity for questions. This time we've got a bit of a treat because we've got one person in conversation with me and I'm, I hope she's going to talk, mainly she's going to do a lot of talking. And, and you're going to really enjoy what she has to say. She's very an interesting speaker. She's very challenging in some ways and a very positive person. And, and I think that's going to be fantastic. And we're going, so this is Dame Elizabeth. She'll be sharing her early life, including she's going to really focus on her nurse and midwifery training. And I think in her other career with the sickle cell movement that she, she's, she's worked through, and her experience of bullying. So I think it's very apt for people who are listening because many of us will have experienced bullying in part of our lives and knowing how to deal with it and succeed despite that is really important. Now I was going to just start, we always start with a little moment of the week, but I think that Dame Elizabeth has going to start with a moment of maybe of the summer. Elizabeth, your moment, oh, your oh, moment. My, oh, my moment. <laughs> my absolutely incredible moment that really took me out of the angst of lockdown and the depression surrounding 
worrying about my colleagues in respect to COVID-19, was being invited to be a guest on Desert Island Discs. Yeah. Mm. And um, I, the first task I was set was to take uh, delivery of a huge, so it was like a suitcase full of recording equipment. Because of course I couldn't go to the BBC studios and sit with Lauren Laverne, the presenter. And so that was a little bit anxiety provoking. Did I get it all connected properly? But I did. Mm. And Lauren Laverne is the most wonderful person to have a conversation with, just like Sue, and um, put me at my ease. And I obviously thoroughly enjoyed the experience. I mean, what an honour. How many of us have thought about the tracks that we would choose if ever we were to do a Desert Island Discs? Mm. So, yes, that, that was absolutely incredible. Yeah. Fabulous. Thank you. Now, I would recommend any of any of you out there who like to listen to Desert Island Disc or even those who haven't ever listened to it, just go on to the BBC um, Listen Again tracks and go and listen to that recording because it's fantastic. And you get even more of Elizabeth on that show, but also some of her music, which is really interesting choice. Um, and it's a fantastic way of getting to know somebody and what makes them tick, I think. So thank you for sharing that moment. That's fantastic. Thanks. Um, and I'd like just at this point just to say really a message of solidarity for people who are out there, who are caring for, supporting people who've had COVID. And also this uh, new, well, I don't know if it's new phenomenon, but this long COVID which is affecting a lot of people. I know I was listening, looking at the tweeting this, this morning and looking at one of the doctors was saying she had a whole number of colleagues who had long COVID who were very unwell and had been unwell for a long time. And so I want to sort of raise that and just think about your colleagues who might be suffering from this long COVID, but also people who've been sick people who've got people, other loved ones who are unwell, we're thinking about you and we're sending positive thoughts to you. And obviously another big thank you to the NHS workers who are looking after everybody and all the key workers who are making sure everything keeps going. As we're sort of entering, as we've got bigger numbers of people who are suffering from COVID, it's kind of feeling a bit awful for many people. So we're with you, we're with you. I also have got a little highlights. This is my highlights time. And I'd say tomorrow is the 1st of October. I can't believe it's the 1st of October. It's actually the start of the Black History Month. And it's really time to celebrate and honor the contribution that Black Britons have made throughout our history. And I, I'd like to see a bit more of the history personally, because I think that's a whole area that we, I don't think we know enough about. And I'm sure Elizabeth is going to talk about that a little bit and probably share a little tweet from this morning because that made me smile too. It's also um, Neonatal Intensive Care Unit Awareness Day. So there's also been lots of stories about um, babies and families who've had the, the trauma of a baby in N N Naiku. Um, and I think it's 
important also to remember those parents and what they're going through. And we're also thinking about the COVID-restricted people in parts of the North, Northwest and Wales, and we send greetings and good wishes for you. If you have accessed the new NHS COVID app, I'm sure you'll be using it. If you haven't, do try and download it onto the phone and get into using it and, and keying into wherever you're going. It, I understand there's probably about eight or nine million people who've downloaded it already. I think the more that we can download it, the more we can um, know what's happening, where it's happening. There's also a fantastic short course on supporting women's autonomy in childbirth from birth rights. And they've got places on the 6th of October. It's online, as many things are. They've also got places in November. So look out for that at birth rights. And also for many of my midwifery colleagues in the UK, next week is the RCM conference. So that's another thing that we're going to keep busy with. Okay, well, I'm going to scamper now onto the main event, which is Professor Dame Elizabeth Anionwu. And I noticed the pronunciation, I hope I've got correct still, DBECBE. She is an Emeritus Professor of Nursing at the University of West London. She's also a qualified nurse, almost was a qualified midwife, also a health visitor, a health visitor, health visitor tutor, and she's had many senior roles, executive roles at various organisations, including, and I think that's one of the key things, being the first ever UK sickle cell thalassemia nurse counsellor. She was head of the Brent Sickle Cell and Thalassemia Information Screening Centre. She was senior lecturer in community genetic counselling at Institute of Child Health in UCL. She was dean of the School of Adult Nursing Studies and professor of nursing at University of West London. Um, she's had various uh, articles published in many journals. She was also the vice chairperson of the successful Mary Seacole Memorial Statue Appeal. And those of you who've been St. Thomas's will have seen that marvellous statue that's there. It's very heartwarming, fantastic to see. She's also now the patron of the Sickle Cell Society and the Nigerian Nurses Charitable Association of the UK. Oh, my goodness. Vice President of Unite Community Practitioners and Health Visitors Association. She was awarded at Damehood by the, in the Queen's 2017 New Year's Honours List for Services to Nursing and the Mary Seacole Statue Appeal. She was awarded CB in 2001. She had a fellowship of the Royal College of Nursing in 2004. And she's also a fellow of the Queen's Nursing Institute in 2017. And very, fairly recently, she published her memoir, Mixed Blessings from a Cambridge Union, which is available in paper book or ebook via Amazon, which I think she might talk a little bit about in a moment. So welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you very much, Sue. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about your mixed blessings and your coping above the odds. Thank you. So it's, it's a pleasure to be invited uh, this evening. And um, hello to everybody out there. What I'd like to do is, is explain the title of my memoirs and look how my arrival influenced my emotions and why I wanted to be a nurse and what happened with my midwifery training, why I didn't complete it. So 
Let's start with mix, the title, Mixed Blessings from the Cambridge Union. I was the outcome of an affair of two university students at Cambridge University during the Second World War and just after. And my mother got pregnant. She was studying classics. She came from an Irish heritage, deeply religious Catholic family. So this happened in her second year. Uh, my parents never married. So you can imagine during that era, the stigma, the shame. And also my mother, all she told her parents, my grandparents, was that the father of the baby was a fellow student. She hadn't revealed her pregnancy. She was so ashamed and she, it was my grandmother who was making her a skirt it was during the Easter holiday uh, of her university course. And immediately my grandmother realized my mom was pregnant and horrified, shocked, said, are you pregnant? And my mother said, yes. And my grandmother asked her, well, when were you going to tell us? And, and apparently my mother said, she wasn't going to tell them. She was going to go down to the local river, jump in and kill herself. So I think, you know, we can all imagine this, the, the, the sense of shame that my mother must have felt. Um, everybody's expectations. She was an extremely intelligent person, very gifted child, uh, first to go to the a university in her family, like many working class uh, families of that time. And so there must have been huge, ex she must have had huge ex expectations of an academic career. Her, uh, her parents must have just, everybody must have been absolutely delighted. And then this happens. So as I said, my mother never said anything about my father. So comes the day when my mother has had me and she's in a mother and baby home run by Irish Catholic nuns. And my grandparents approached the room. The nun stops them in their tracks, doesn't allow them straight away to come into the room where we were, turns around to them and says, ah, to be sure the baby's a little dark. Because it's obviously after my birth, here arrived a brown-skinned baby with an afro. Well, I don't know what the reaction was. But one thing I do know was that prior to my arrival, my grandparents had decided that they would pretend that this baby that was due to arrive was theirs. That my, it was my grandmother's baby. And, um, and she would just tell the neighbours she had this unexpected pregnancy in later age, and hey-ho. Because my grandparents actually did support my mother. It, it, it's, I often say that my memoirs think Philomena meets Barack Obama's dreams from my father, because if you know the story, the very traumatic mm. story of Philomena, Irish lady mm. um, who was turfed out of her home in Ireland for becoming pregnant and what not married, and. 
the baby was taken away from her as a three-year-old, I think. And there's a beautiful film, I'm sure. Many people have seen it or, or, or read the book. Now, that was, that was just an awful outcome for Philomena. Um, that, and, and also the negative reaction of the Catholic Church towards Philomena and the horror, horrible treatment she had at the hands of some of the nuns. That didn't happen to my mother. And I think it was because my grandparents were staunch um, attendees at the local church. My grandfather was a friend of the parish priest, and that was the person he turned to in this time of absolute shock or what are we going to do? And the church absolutely looked after my, my family. So the idea was that temporary, I, I would be placed in a, a, a children's home temporarily until my mother completed her studies. But my mother decided she didn't want to go back to the university. She felt that she couldn't have a career, the academic career she wanted as a single mother. And there, there was no way she was going to give me up. This, there was a defiance. And I, you know, am I so glad because that enabled me never to have had any sense of rejection from my mother. However, she had to, uh, she wanted to be a journalist, that never happened. So she, but she took a secretarial course while staying with her, her parents. And the idea was within a year or so, uh, she'd be able to collect me from the children's home and look after me and have a, have a, have a career as well. But it all took a lot longer than that. So I actually mm. spent the first nine years of my life in the children's home. And I, I know that this has surprised lots of my colleagues and friends when they heard about it. And in fact, that's why they urged me to write my memoirs because I've done well professionally and personally. Um, how did you do it? Um, mm. you, you were in a children's home for nine years. We, we read about these very negative narratives of children in, in such institutions. What was your experience? Well, actually, on the whole, my experience in the children's home was, was quite happy. However, hmm. there were some very, very negative mm. experiences. Mm. And one was not due to the colour of my skin. It was due to the fact that I was a bedwetter. And the punishment for this little group of us that were bedwetters was that the nun would tear off the urine soap sheet, make us stand on a chair, drape this wet sheet over our body, force us to put our arms stretched up, because that was the punishment, to keep your arms stretched up under the sheet. And if the, your arm dropped, which it would quickly, the nun on the other side of the sheet would whack you with a ruler. Now, you know, even as a small child, I, I just thought, <laughs> it's not very Christian. <laughs> we, we, we're constantly yeah. being taught how to be kind to people and, you know, Jesus loves everybody. And, you know, um, I'm thinking, well, and nuns, you know, were the brides of Christ, we were told, very holy women. So that was a very negative uh, experience. On the positive side, though, 
it was where I decided to become a nurse because I had very bad eczema and subsequently diagnosed with asthma as well. So I was a sickly child. And in those days, eczema was treated with um, coal tar paste. And it was very, very soothing on, you know, in my uh, areas where, where I had the eczema. And uh, lovely cooling paste, and then they bandage it around. However, when it came for the dressing to be changed, the paste had stuck to the skin. And I, when it was time for me to go to the sick bay, where it was to get my dressings changed, I would peep around the door to see in my mind whether it was the white nun or the black nun. Now, all the nuns were white, but there was one particular nun who wore a white habit rather than the traditional black habit. And that's the person I hoped would be on duty. Because if it, if it wasn't her, the other nun would just tear the bandage off Paste would tear off my skin because it had dried up. I'd bleed, it would be painful. I'd just scream with pain. But the white nun who wore a white habit, she used to use distraction therapy, I now realise. Because as I've said, I, I, as, far as, I, as far as I was concerned, nuns were holy women, very holy. Mm. And she used to say, crack jokes with me and use words that I thought were really, really rude. Um, five, six-year-old, I don't know. Words like bottom. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I just scream with laughter. And, of course, that's when she would take the bandage off without me feeling any pain whatsoever. And it's interesting. I think pain is a theme that has affected my career. Mm. And I think it goes back to having having suffered I, I mean the pain it, it was excruciating but it's nothing like the pain of sickle cell crisis mm. don't get me wrong mm. but having been a child that had suffered pain and knowing of this person who could avoid you having pain mm. to my mind she was the most wonderful person on earth and I, I later found out that she was something called a nurse so that's when I decided I wanted to be a nurse. Um, do you want to ask me any questions, Sue, on this? Or well, it, it, I mean, it's quite, it's very interesting because I know at one point when you'd started your nurse training, people there was a doctor who felt you were very gifted and suggested maybe you'd like to be a doctor rather than nurse, but you'd actually it was so strong in you that you wanted to undertake nursing and be a nurse. Were you, do you think that was the right decision? Oh, yes, it was the right decision. I've, I've, Sue, I've thoroughly enjoyed my nursing career. Mm. And of course, as the years went on, so many more openings occurred for mm. nurses. I mean, I, I left school at 16, not through choice. And... Um, I, I would never have envisaged that not only would, well, I, I could envisage becoming a nurse, but never envisaged that I would complete a, a PhD and become a professor of nursing. I mean, that, I mean, even halfway through my nursing career, I didn't know those options would be open. Mm. It was 
you know, when I, yeah. So I've thoroughly enjoyed my nursing career. And I think because I've done varied um, aspects of, of nursing, both, I must admit, hospital wasn't my the best mm. environment for me. And um, I think when I talk about my experience as a student midwife, I think it will become clear Mm. some aspects of the hierarchical nature that there certainly was in those days rubbed me up the wrong way totally uh, you, I mean do you think I mean it's interesting you say about the community because I know when I've heard you before and I've I've read your book which is for those of you who haven't read it this is fantastic a book to read um is it is it do you think it might be that a hospital feels a bit like an institution, which was your early experience, and the community is more about almost coming home. Yes, I think okay. I think also yes, I'm sure that could have been it. But I think it was also that I experienced a lot of illogical rules and regulations in hospital, mm. uh, and I was um, irritated by that. Uh, whereas I knew that if I became a health visitor I would have to visit families homes mm. they 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 were more in control in terms of who came into their home and who didn't and we know that some mm. families have all sorts of ways of not letting you into their homes <laughs> if they don't want you you know and I think it was that I felt that you know you had to treat the family with respect mm. otherwise yeah, why should they let you into their own homes? And I actually found that a very interesting challenge. I've always found it interesting to, I haven't always succeeded, but, you know, the the the, the classic, I can't remember who wrote it now, I should remember, but the, the difficult the difficult patient, mm. um, Norton, or so, I, I can't remember the name, mm. fascinating piece of research. And what is it, why are some patients described as difficult and 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 can we develop a relationship with such individuals and in fact what really fascinated me was how people feel very frightened when they're ill and and on the whole they are looking for reassurance but they're also looking for expertise they they, they want to trust you they want to trust that you have the knowledge that they need as well as have empathy and, you know, a sense of humour at times as well. And I just found, I just felt that going into people's homes, getting over the doormat, so to speak, mm. and building up that relationship quickly, because you had to do it quickly. And I'm obviously this is within health visiting in particular. I mean, I did actually love my midwifery studies. I have to tell you, I loved that um, relationship that you could build up, particularly with the, the woman uh, and then when the baby arrived uh, but I, I was traumatized by this bullying experience in in, yeah. in midwifery I don't know whether you want me to well talk. I would because I, I think that that's again something that's very interesting because you 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 obviously love the mothers and babies mm. um, and your connection and your whole approach showed you you were potentially a fantastic midwife and yet someone and 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 i wondered if there, it wasn't just one person but there was more of a culture that you experienced as a student midwife and perhaps you'd share well, that experience what, what i'd like to do sue is actually just read this short extract from my Please, memoirs because yeah. 
it, it, it will stop me from going off on a tangent, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Excuse me. So uh, the hierarchical and illogical behaviour of some of the staff was starting to get me down. The final straw was getting into trouble with the sister of a postnatal ward for becoming too involved without her permission. It concerned an older middle-class woman who was both depressed and struggling to breastfeed her baby. I spent some time at her bedside, successfully helping the baby to suckle at last. The mother was very exhausted and her depression developed into the more severe mental illness of purple psychosis. She was transferred to a psychiatric unit in a different part of the city. After some time, her husband, a journalist, contacted me saying that his wife wanted to see me. I went and was delighted to see the improvement in her state of mind and how well she was bonding with her child. On my return to the hospital, I was summoned to see the ward sister and shocked when she gave me a dreadful dressing down. Mm. A friend of hers at the psychiatric unit had informed her of my visit. All I can remember her saying repeatedly was, just who do you think you are? Who gave you permission to visit her? It seemed to be such a daft and unjust admonition that after her dismissal of my initial response concerning the husband's request, it seemed better to just keep quiet. Once out of her office, I struggled to stop the tears from running down my face and felt a sense of blackness surrounding me. There was no way that I wanted to continue my studies and I decided to look into how to become a health visitor. The idea of working in the community and visiting families in their own homes to promote health appealed to me much more than working in a hospital. In the meantime, continuing with French classes, I, I always wanted to improve mm. my French. Uh, continuing with French classes at the Institut Francaise helped to lessen my feelings of depression. One day I saw a small announcement on the notice board stating that a family living near Paris was seeking a person to speak English to their two children. My mind was made up. This would be my next move. Around the same time, while walking along the hospital corridor, the matron stopped me in my tracks. She asked me why I was looking so despondent and lo and behold, the tears started flowing again. So she invited me to come to her office and over a cup of tea asked me why I had changed so much from the cheerful student of six months ago. I was amazed that she even knew me never mind the degree of sympathy and support she offered. So I just told her all my problems. Firstly, she said she would speak to the sister in question as I had been quite right to visit the psychiatric unit. Then she proceeded to inquire about my future plans and promised to give me a reference when I applied to become a health visitor. She reassured me that the obstetric experience I had gained at the hospital was sufficient to meet the requirements of the course. Finally, she told me to apply for the job in Paris and to let her know the outcome. When I heard that the job was mine, she was one of the first to offer her congratulations and wish me well in France. 
So, in December 1969, at the age of 22 years, I was about to embark on my first ever experience of living abroad. While this event is free on Facebook Live, on demand afterwards and as a podcast, it's not free to produce. You can support the Maternity and Midwifery Hour on Patreon now. You can sign up as a loyal supporter for as little as £3 a month or a little more to get content early and receive bonus content. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash midwiferyhour and give what you can afford. Your support is greatly appreciated. And that in itself was another big adventure. Yes, yeah. But if I could just comment, I think mm. what I learnt from what had been a very traumatic experience with that ward system, it showed me that there were other kind of people. And I was lucky enough to meet the person in charge of the midwifery unit. I mean, in charge of the it was a mm. hospital. Um, so I presume she would be a director of midwifery now. Mm. And... It, I think it that has happened during my life. I, I have been very fortunate that when I've really felt things were very tough, along has come somebody who has seen something in me. Mm. And as I got more confident, I was able to ask for support. But before I was able to, such as this, I would never have thought, you know, as far as I was concerned, the ward sister was the boss mm. and she could treat people in this disgusting way. Mm. And there's nothing I could do about it, except leave the course. But the matron, as she was then called, showed me another side and and somebody who was in authority. And it's never left me that. And I hope that 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 has cascaded out of my own behaviour when I have seen students who were who were who were down and um, given them some hope whatever it was they wanted to do, they could do, or at least signpost them mm. if all, you know, if it, if it was too much for them. But sometimes to experience, I mean, I hadn't worked out why I had this sense of blackness surrounding me. Mm. Um, it was depression. Mm. It was absolutely, it was, it was a sense of feeling worthless, um, having been humiliated by this war in front of other people, of course. Mm. And, um, and illogical. I mean, I, I was, I'd been invited to go and see this mother. What, what, I just couldn't see what the problem was. Mm. But this sense that she had to be in control of my movements. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because 1969, mm. things were very different. Exactly. Or were they? Are they, would that happen today, I wonder? And I'm, I'm wondering if people who are listening might be thinking, well, something similar happened to me. I'd be sad to hear it, but I, I know that bullying, I know from other colleagues that bullying is a is a, a sort of perennial forever problem that we always keep having to address. And I kind of, as you were talking, I was thinking, well, I wonder how that matron dealt with that sister and whether actually she changed or whether she carried on with that approach, because would she really understand the impact 
because that you're quite right in those days and until comparatively recently the the ward sister was the in charge mm. she and it was always a she she who must be obeyed and mm. could make your life very difficult mm. and i suppose that's one of the difficulties about bullying is because who could you have shared it with at that time no and i think as i've said i've always remembered that and there is bullying going on, Sue. I, 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 I hear some horrendous stories. Mm. Some not so horrendous, but some really, or, you know. Now, there, I think there are more opportunities for people to seek support, helplines occasionally and things like that, and certainly out with the health service, but also mm. within. Mm. It's certainly been talked about in a way that it was never talked about. I mean, I just, it, I just wouldn't have... I, I, I just, and that's what I can understand when people, particularly students, talk to me sometimes about maybe some difficulties they're having. The idea of approaching a more senior person than the person who has bullied you, you know, that takes any, it takes knowledge that you can do that, that there are people mm. around that you could approach. And it also takes a lot of courage. I mean, it was the, the matron who approached me, not the other way around. I would never have thought of asking for help. I would have just left. And I think certainly when I, I, when I was working in a university and we, we did hear that a student was talking about leaving, there was a system in place where an independent person spoke to that student. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, things have improved. Well, certainly in the institution I worked. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, sadly, sometimes it's only with the exit interview when they've definitely put their notice in yeah. and they're going, and where some organisations do have the exit interview, it's too late then sometimes. Occasionally it could be salvaged, but it, I think it's got it's too late, probably. Mm. It made, made everything better. I mean, I noticed another little bit, and you, did, you, were, you got on very well in nursing, um, but I noticed that one of your friends actually said, she thought it would be unlikely you'd do very mm. well in nursing because of the way you looked. That's and right. I wondered, you know, how, do you think things have changed for the better? Because, and, and I know this is a very <coughs> current discussion in a way. Yes. And so, you are, yeah. so let's talk about that friend, Janet, her name is. We both trained as student nurses at the same time. She was a few years older than me and I looked up to her. She was, she was, uh, she's still a great friend. But it was only when I interviewed her as part of the group of people I was interviewing for my memoirs, because mm. I wanted to hear what did people think about me? How did mm. I present in my <clears throat> early years before I met my father? <clears throat> Excuse me. Because I know that finding my father at the age of 25 transformed me. But I thought, actually, did it show to other people? And that's what gave me the idea. Let me let me interview. And of course, I love qualitative research as well, I have to say. And it was beautiful. I got such nuggets. And one of them was hearing for the very first time that Janet, as we approached our finals in our third year of nursing, was very, very worried about my future in nursing. And the reason was, as she said, at that time, we all wanted to be ward sisters, you know. That was, and she, but when she looked around, she could see no black ward sisters. 
We're talking about 1968 in Paddington. And that struck her, look, as she said in her quote, here's Elizabeth, an intelligent student who should go far, but will she even be able to become a ward sister? Because she doesn't, there, there's no black ward sisters around. And yet there were black nurses around. Mm. So this is my white friend, cognizant of the fact that there must be some barriers in promotion. Now you asked Sue if things were the same. I would say that it's just pushed up a bit further up the echelons of nursing and, and midwifery, I would say as well. In other words, we're aware that those in, there are uh, individuals who want to get promoted into the higher, uh, most more senior ranks, really senior ranks in our profession, mm -hmm. and are just hitting their head against a brick wall. And th th there's, there's evidence galore now to show that racism has pl is playing a part. As we know that there are other factors, there is gender discrimination, there is sexual orientation discrimination. We know that, but we, we certainly know race is a factor. Mm. And, and that is, as you said, Black Lives Matter, Black History Month. There have been some improvements, but not enough. Mm. And so we, we will still have people who think they're not going to make it, even though they're qualified. And I think where the resentment kicks in, and the number of times I've heard this story, is this is an individual who has been given lots of uh, responsibilities, but never gets promoted. Somebody else gets promoted, less experienced than that individual, who that individual is asked, show this person the ropes. Ah, oh, no, come on, that's... That's that's mm -hmm. rubbing somebody's nose in the dirt, I would say, actually. Mm. Mm. And, and I, I think we've still got a lot of work to do. But I, I may, maybe this is the time things are going to start improving. I hope they will. Well, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I, I, I think racism, sadly, is always going to be with us, just as homophobia and all those other things. There's something about certain individuals where they need to feel superior to others. Mm. And if, if somebody could find a way to sort that out, life would be a lot easier for so, so many mm. people. And I think the thing when it comes to racism, based on the color of somebody's skin, I can never ever get rid of this skin color. I don't, as a child in the convent, in the children's home, I washed my face 10 times with red life boy soap. What was that about? So, and yet, you know, I, I, there, were, there were some examples of overt racism towards me in childhood, but not to the extent that I felt totally traumatized by my nine years in the children's home. As I've said, on the whole, I've got happy memories, on the whole. But, I mean, there was one silly uh, example. Well, it, wasn't, it, it was a horrible example. A nun had, uh, she wanted to put on a little entertainment for the other children based on nursery rhymes. So she chose some of us to be different characters from nursery rhymes. And she chose me to be Humpty Dumpty. Oh, I was, I'm obviously a show off, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled, you know, Humpty Dumpty. Another nun 
came and said, no, she can't be Humpty Dumpty. She's half caste. She used that term half caste. You know, that was a very yeah, yeah. common term. She's half caste. Now, you tell me, what colour is Humpty Dumpty? Well, actually, somebody pointed out to me, Humpty Dumpty's an egg. <laughs> I didn't I didn't even... Is, it, is Humpty Dumpty an egg? I don't, yes. see, I don't know my nursery rhyme characters. Yes. Well, we've got brown eggs, haven't we? We've got white eggs. <laughs> so that nun didn't know her, her, her business, did she? <laughs> All I knew as a child was how distressed I was that this chance to take part in a performance, which, you know, children loved it, particularly when you've been picked. And then another such, and, and I knew that was about my skin colour. Mm. But, you know, the other nun stood her ground and I was Humpty Dumpty. Oh, you were Humpty Dumpty. I was Humpty Dumpty. And I fell <laughs> off that wall with such a land, Sue. You'd be so proud of me. But, <laughs> but you know, how farcical is racism, but how painful is, is racism Absolutely. as well. And, and as I've said, not that I want to change my skin colour, but the fact that as a child, I wanted to change my mm. skin colour. And that quietly I went and washed my face so many times. I ended up in sick bears, I've said. As a result, oh, I got inflamed skin because of my sensitive skin. Mm. That shows you that a child is very observant, is no noticing distinctions that are being made, and realises, in my example, it was due to my skin colour. And at that time, I was the only black child in the convent in those, in those early years, mm. of, in the 1950s. On, on a more positive note, because of being in care, I, I'm sure, I only had a, a photograph of me sitting on my mother's knee, which is the one, I'm about nine months of age, that's mm. the, the, the illustration on my front cover of my memoirs. The next photograph I had was when I was 11. I had no photographs in between. And I think imagery of us as children is so important. We as parents, as grandparents, as friends, we, we photographs are very important, aren't they? And due to being on Desert Island Discs, I had contact from somebody who had been to the same school that I was at in the, the Catholic convent had their own school for the children in care, but children from outside who were not in care could attend the school as well. And one of these um, uh, pupils who was now, she was just a couple of years younger than me apparently, she had a photograph of me in our little class with a nun on either side and the statue of Holy Mary at the back <laughs> wow. in the grounds. And I've got that photograph. So I've now got for the first time a photograph of me and I look about seven or eight. Yeah. So I can't tell you how thrilled I was. It's like more of my jigsaw is coming together. Yeah. yeah. And we all look really happy as well. So I thought, yeah. oh, good. Cause I keep saying we were on the whole happy and you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's what comes over within the book. And when, whenever you talk, you, you've, you've overcome things. You've been very positive. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking as, as you were talking a little while about people not being promoted, having to do the job, whatever. And I think sometimes it's the kind of um, the Pygmalion thing, the Pygmalion, where if people don't believe or you don't believe you're good enough, you won't go for it. But and you need people to tell you, you that you're good believe. enough. Absolutely. Yes. And yes. you need some things like mm. pictures. And mm -hmm. I loved the, the, the way that you interviewed people and had little snippets. And I think we should all do that mm. because how often do we, 
you know, get feedback from our friends, from our family to say, what do you think? What did you think I was doing? How did you think I was at that point? Because that in a way, I mean, you, you needed to do it because you were you compiling your memoirs. But well, how Sue, precious, the, how mm, precious. Mm. But, Sue, the reason I wanted to do it, because I read a lot, as, as many people do, and yes. I love autobiographies in particular. And I, But I've read some autobiographies, and I'm thinking, hmm, were you really that fantastic? Did you, you know, it's come over, it's come over, well, autobiographies are a bit <laughs> egotistical, a bit... Mm. And I wanted people to be really honest with me about how they viewed me. And they were honest. You can see some people, you know, saying, I'm a bossy and um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I'm a bit, I'm, I can be quite intolerant if somebody's not keeping up with me. You know, that, that, there is an honesty in, in, and they were saying nice things as well. But I asked people to really step back and just think, what, what did they remember about my personality in terms of, how how I came over because um, it, it's it's it it was quite enlightening for me right. to, to 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 hear from from various individuals and and you've you've done I mean you also did a huge amount of work with sickle cell which I mean I think one of the things I remember from my own training is that that, that when I think back there was nothing nothing at all nothing in the textbooks nothing taught it was only later on and you you experienced the same thing and you went out and kind of started sorting it out as i recall and i think that was a fantastic thing to have achieved for people with sickle cell because there is again there's um quite a lot of intolerance for, for some people who have a sickle cell crisis have come into hospital in terrible pain mm -hmm. and there's this thing about well you shouldn't give them too much pain relief mm -hmm. that sort of thing which you you really fought against didn't you yes and I think um it was I think I, I tell students capture moments when you feel so angry that you want to do something about it and use that anger in a positive way rather than a negative way beating yourself up about it or it affecting relationships negatively or your career negatively. So very um, briefly, it was witnessing as a health visitor going into a, a, a home, the mother was absolutely distraught. I mean, she was just, she was, she had a, a young boy with sickle cell anemia actually in, a, in pain when I was there. And she said, you know, the doctors really do look after him when he goes into hospital. I've got no criticism there, but I want to know more about the illness and I want to know what, I can do as a mother to see if I can prevent him getting pain such as this and was looking to me for advice I'd never had a lecturer as you say so that made me so so angry looking back fortunately something made me channel that anger positively working with others meeting up with a haematologist Dr Brozovic who taught me so much about it and I ended up working with her and having been to the United States, seeing that nurses could have a role. And of course, midwives have a role as well. I'm delighted with that as well. And realizing, hold on, I could be involved with this. And that's how that came about. So capture areas where you want to improve the quality of care and, and use that anger mm. in a positive way. Because anger equals energy as far as I'm concerned. Well, it is for you. <laughs> 
<laughs> it is absolutely oh no i have to i have to be stop being greedy now and i have uh da, 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 da. i have a few a couple of questions through and um, one's from diane garland who says hello diane i trained in 1982 and experienced and saw bullying i still work clinically and still see this happening now mm. my worry and the question is maybe why do we have major maternity units uh, still under investigation? Is that maybe why we have some major maternity units under uh, investigation? Because of a, a, I guess because I haven't read that very well, but but because of bullying culture mm. causing well, bullying, problem. Well, yeah, because surely bullying can lock down an individual and and prevent them from performing their best. Uh, that is mm. the worry, actually, mm. because. You know, if you're depressed and scared, you know, you can be scared of a senior member of staff. Mm. And, 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 and that can make you, I, I've had that experience as well, you can, you can be so nervous that um, you don't perform to your best. You can't perform to your best. Mm. And I, I mean, the question is, why do people bully? Mm. What do they get out of it? Is it a sense of great, what is it? It's such a nasty aspect of behavior mm. to bully an individual. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, it's quite interesting that you often will get someone who says, I don't tolerate bullies, and they turn out to be one of the bullies mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and Jenny, Jenny Hall, hello, Jenny, <coughs> says, so helpful for everyone to hear this, the, that things are Im improved. I too have experienced poor attitudes towards students and also have had bullying toward me. Some have been advised to don't challenge, keep quiet, keep your head down and you'll be all okay. What would you advise students who see bullying or poor practice happening and get told to be quiet? What, sh what should they do? Good question, they, Jenny. They need to find these resources like the whistleblower um, uh, agencies and, and they need to find somebody in, in, a, in a position of authority that they can trust. Hopefully they, they can find something. It might be their tutor. It might be another ward, you know, somebody else. It might be a, 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 even even a, a, um, another student who they feel has got the confidence to support them. You ha never bottle it up. Never keep quiet. But it, it's easy for me to say not, you know, never keep quiet because there is the worry where you hear of whistleblowers whose career has just been wrecked. Mm. So I think sometimes you have to go. Out, I think you should try and work inside the organisation, but you may also and or go to an outside agency to get support um, mm. because uh, you keep quiet and I think that that will have negative psychological effects on that individual, mm. never mind on the quality. And, uh, you know, we do have a duty of care, don't we, to our, our patients, our families. If we see... Um, uh, poor professional care due, mm. due, might be due to bullying as, as, or they have witnessed it. Mm. Um, it. There is a risk. There is a risk. But, you know, when you look at the most tyrannical, dictatorial um, areas of the world, you know that that dictator, that tyrant, and even in a hospital, because, you know, People have been allowed to get away with it. Yeah. And it does take people to put their head above the parapet sometimes. And you have, occasionally you have to take the risk. Mm. 
And it is it's sometimes scary. I think the other thing about bullying that I've noticed that when you talk to someone who's being bullied and they're, t I mean, luckily, you know, they're telling you all about it. And then they'll say, well, it, it doesn't sound like anything because it's these little, little things that a bully is very good at doing, mm -hmm. of undermining, biting at people and taking away their confidence, which is mm -hmm. very damaging, but actually quite hard. I wouldn't say to prove, but to kind of the person who's being bullied can get into this thing well maybe i'm just making fuss about maybe i'm being too sensitive maybe and that, I'm and that person being that's silly been, but that person that's been bullied just needs an advocate don't, don't they they need yeah. to find somebody and as i've said i think we have to we all have to step out of the box and in thinking who is the person that could not only listen to me but actually help do something about it and often that does mean they maybe have to be in a position of authority, maybe not necessarily, might be, you know, a friend who's prepared to be in the room with you. It might be somebody who can help you log exactly what has been happening. No, that's a good point. That, that, that is, because our memories, you know, we'll forget, we're, we're also so stressed that mm. when we're trying to recount it, it gets all mumbled, jumbled up. You have somebody who's a friend or somebody who you trust and say, no, hold on let's just go back on that because I'm just a little bit confused you know and that you can hear somebody say that without thinking they don't believe you they're just saying hold on let me be clear in what you're saying here because that in itself is going to help you hopefully with the case that you're able to document clearly what has actually been happening to you mm. uh, and and you never know there might be witnesses there might be people who will say actually you know I'm happy to come and say I've witnessed that you, mm. you know don't don't have don't ever give up mm. that's brilliant actually but I think there might be another question coming in I mean I think what's interesting is and and I think when I got it very much from reading your memoir again that you've got you've had a lot of ups and downs because even when you say you were in care for that, those nine years you weren't in the same place you were moved around no, that's and you've you've you you're very upbeat and very positive about it and I, I just I wonder what is it what is it in you that's made you positive because you could have been really negative and just given up and thought well what's the point well well <laughs> we talk genetics Irish and Evo combination oh. sense of humor intelligence I, I mean come on I've been able to I, I, reading has helped me enormously. Music has helped me because I am experiencing or I have experienced knocks as everybody has. But I think it's what strategies do we use to get ourselves out of this dark place? And the, uh, what I've realized, I think it's because I've got an open mind and I'm inquisitive, uh, but I love music and we should use music to, you know, I, I, the certain tracks that cheer me up, the certain tracks that calm me down when I feel hyper, you know, um, we must always remember talking to friends or texting. Mm. Just it, I seem to be able to have the confidence, even when I'm down, to try and talk to somebody or do something to get me out of that situation. I don't like that feeling at all. Mm. And my my brain is saying, get out, get out of that situation, Elizabeth. So I'm sort of trying to think, well, what, what, 
you know, I mean, COVID-19, uh, my situation is nothing like some people, but that first week when people over 70 were told to be in lockdown before the rest of the country, yes. I did feel a bit down then. You know what cheered me up? Watching the Derry Girls. <laughs> I was just bored. I was just laughing. I'm thinking, okay, that, that has helped. I've realised I'm not feeling as down as I did 20 minutes ago. So it's just realising that there are resources, even in, your, in my flat, on my own, I've got a television, I've, and I think it, it is also helpful, sadly, to think that actually you are in a better position than many other people. It, what mm. is it? Count our blessings. I think that's the expression, isn't it? Well, that's from the blessings, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, mixed blessings. <laughs> yes. yes. It is. Go. I mean, I think. It, I think. I hope we can learn from you. And, and take some of the upbeat and some of the sort of strategies for, for kind of surviving hard knocks. I've just got one comment from Sarah Spencer, who's calling in from the Republic of Ireland. Oh. Hi, Sarah. And she says, in the Republic of Ireland, there's a code of practice for employers and employees on the prevention and resolution of bullying at work. Should the UK adopt a similar approach in legislation? I'm... I know that, I mean, my personal knowledge is there are an awful lot of um, policies and procedures in every unit, every university will have policies and procedures, but it's that way of navigating them without kind of damage to your career, to your course, mm. to whatever, as you go it, through. It, it would be interesting to, to know if people have found it useful, people who yes. have been bullied, have they found that useful? Has it got them out of that situation? Excellent. Elizabeth, I have to say I could talk to you for hours more, but our time is coming to an end, sadly. And I know the audience would be sad, too. And I'd like to say thanks. Or now I don't know if this is correct, correct pronunciation of Dallo or Dalo. Dallo. 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 Thank you. Oh, thank thank you. you to our wonderful speaker, Dame Elizabeth. Um, and she, I, I, I just have to finish with this because I love this. In her book, she describes a friend who said, well, you've got a CBE and that's quite right. Cool, black and exceptional. And I have to say you are too. You're fantastic. Mm, and thank you so much for joining us this evening and giving us a, a kind of inspirational and very positive story to w from which we can learn an awful lot about how we can make our lives better and, and take some strategies to deal with when we're down or when we have difficulties that we have to overcome. Now, some of us will be on social media a little bit later and there will be resources, including a reference to uh, Elizabeth's book. I have to say, I, I'd hold it up, but it's in my Kindle because there we go there we go can you see like, that? Ah, ha, ha. thank you where's, thank the, you where's the camera can you see that or not yes and i oh, love the sorry. photo on the front it's a fantastic yeah, photo that, that's very kind but can i also say thank you sue as well and also say um i'm thinking of all the midwives during this difficult period and um you know well done and keep safe and thank you thank you for those words elizabeth you have just such a peach you're lovely thank you um, there's no maternity and midwifery hour next week but there will be a, 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 an event on the 14th of october so wait for um information about that scottish festivals on the 25th of november so book now in the meantime 
stay safe and well. Remember to keep your loved ones close to, either by Zoom or with a hug if you're living with them, obviously. And we'll see you at the next Maternity and Midwifery Hour. Take care. Thank you for joining us for the Maternity and Midwifery Hour. This podcast has been made possible by the team at Maternity and Midwifery Forum and our CPD partners, Matflix. You can sign up at matflix.co.uk. This episode was edited and produced by Catherine Stewart of the Narrowcast Media Group.